You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. There was a straight pride parade in Seattle this weekend. Uh, and I, I'm, you know, you've heard me talk about this before. I'm kind of for straight pride parades. I, I think there should be an annual kind of event where straight people let it all hang out in public. And we kind of have a, a, a few versions of them on small scale. Mardi Gras in New Orleans. I think Halloween, I've redubbed it heteroween. It's kind of become the heterosexual pride parade through bars and clubs and urban neighborhoods. Heteroween, enjoy it. Used to be ours. Uh, the queers, we used to love Halloween, but now it's yours. Uh, be good to it. It was good to us for so long. But there was an actual, honest-to-God, straight pride parade in Seattle this weekend. And if you live in Seattle, I'm not talking about uh, the Capitol Hill block party, which just happened in Seattle, which are the straightest three days on Capitol Hill, Seattle's gay neighborhood, every year. No, this guy uh, who does not live in Seattle, lives in the burbs, uh, I'm not going to use his name because he's a troll and looking for attention and I want to give him any more attention than I'm already going to give him by ranting about him at the top of the show. So this guy, who's also a gun enthusiast and a conservative, said in reaction to the uh, marriage decision as he called for the straight pride parade, maybe animals should be allowed to get married. While they're at it, how about equal rights for insects? In my opinion, there's a difference between a man and a woman. If you can't appreciate those differences, you can't enjoy those differences. I don't agree with boys turning into girls, and I don't agree with girls turning into boys. The way I see it, some boys never turn into men, and some girls never turn into women. What a shit show. You could say the same thing about this person's reasoning. What a shit show. Gays and lesbians are like animals and insects. No... Gays and lesbians and bi people and trans people. We aren't animals. Of course, though, we are all animals. And we aren't insects, although all life forms on Earth share a common ancestor. So insects are our first cousins, several hundred billion times removed. And there's something else that we are not. We are not hostile to straight people in the way this guy is hostile to gay people. When gay people have a gay pride parade, it's not anti-straight. We aren't marching in opposition to straight marriage or adoptions by straight couples, or sitcoms about straight people, or the baffling fashion choices you straight people make. All queer people are doing when we march is demanding to be treated equally under the law. And most straight people, and I'm sure most straight people who listen to my show, you get that equality under the law for queers doesn't actually deprive straight people of anything, and that gay victories, like our recent one at the Supreme Court, are not straight losses. And you know what? Straight victories, they're not gay losses either so long as straight people don't define depriving gay people of our equal rights as a victory for straightness. But take the take the organizer, the trollinizer, orgatroller behind Seattle Straight Pride March last weekend. The recent Supreme Court decision that brought marriage equality to all 50 states, it hasn't deprived him of his right to enter into a straight marriage. It hasn't deprived him of his right to have all the straight sex he wants or to watch all the straight couples doing all that straight stuff on TV, on most TV shows most of the time. It didn't even deprive him of the right to organize this idiotic straight pride parade through Capitol Hill, Seattle's gay neighborhood, on the single straightest weekend of the year on Capitol Hill. And really, nothing is stopping him from appreciating the differences between men and women. 
You know who else appreciates the differences between men and women? Gays and lesbians. We are very acutely attuned to the differences between men and women, and we have preferences that are shaped by those differences. To say that a gay person can't perceive the differences between men and women is a little redonkulous. And while he doesn't agree with boys turning into girls or girls turning into boys, which is not how the whole trans thing works, trans people are free to do what they want and be who they are. You go, Caitlin, without a signed agreement from every last insecure, butt-sore, gun-fondling, straight guy on the planet. Because freedom means freedom for everyone. If you go online and you look up Seattle's Straight Pride Parade, you will see that I am ranting about a Straight Pride Parade of two. Two people came to the Straight Pride Parade. 150-some-odd people on Facebook indicated that they were coming. Two people came. And the most hilarious detail of the Straight Pride Parade were the balloons the Straight Paraders were carrying. They were black and white. You know how we've stolen the rainbow and some Christian conservatives are always really angry and upset because gay people stole the rainbow and the rainbow used to symbolize God's covenant with Noah's family after God murdered everyone else on the planet. God's new covenant. Here's a rainbow. I'm sorry I killed all you motherfuckers. Have a rainbow. And you have Christian conservatives ranting about how they need to take back the rainbow. We've stolen the rainbow. Apparently we've stolen the color spectrum now too because of the rainbow flag, because of we've taken red and orange and green and blue and pink and purple. They're all ours. So if straight people want to parade around celebrating their straightness, all y'all get is black and white. Those are the only ones you get. That's all that's left. Color means queers. Color means gay marriage. You motherfuckers. You insecure, gun-fondling, Christian conservative nutbags. Black and white for you. That's all you get, at least according to Seattle's most infamous straight guy. All right, coming up on the Magnum. Matt Baum is here to talk about his new book on marriage equality and the fight for it and your calls. Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old homosexual living in San Francisco, California, and I'm dating a 46-year-old, and I desperately need your advice on how to break up with him. We've been going out for a year and a half, and the problem we're having right now is that he is in an open relationship, but he declines to talk about it whatsoever. There's a, there's been a little bit of jealousy, and I'm usually really good at maintaining that je- jealousy. I never get crazy or anything, but each time I ask a little thing here and there about the partner, he just won't cooperate, and that makes me feel really bad. He tells me, oh, there's no love, there's no spark with him anymore and that you're my real boyfriend and but then I go on his Twitter or in his Instagram and he still posts pictures of work events where the partner is present and this makes me jealous and I think I'm ready to just move on and find some other person to date I this is only my second boyfriend I've been broken up with before but I've never broken up with anyone before in my life. So I would really appreciate your advice on how to do this. I have this desire to stay friends with him, but I don't know whether he's the kind of person who likes to stay friends with his ex. So yeah, please 
let me know. Tell me how to do this. Thank you, Dan. I promise you that a guy in an open relationship who disparages and slimes and runs down his partner, the man that he lives with, uh, the man who enjoys the social status of being his boyfriend, also runs down, slimes, disparages the boyfriend to the partner. So if he's telling you there's no love there with the partner, that it's there's no spark and you're the real boyfriend, he's telling the partner that you're just sex and he doesn't really have any feelings for you, blah, blah, blah. And that's why he keeps you two apart because he doesn't want you two to compare notes. He doesn't want you two to have a conversation because pooey, right? Because if you guys compare notes, it's all over for him. Then he's single. Uh, but this is an easy problem to solve. You know, your only problem is here. How do I break up with this guy? You've got to break up with this guy. You don't want to be in this position anymore. It makes you feel jealous and you're not jealous about the affection. You're not jealous about the sex, not jealous about sharing your boyfriend. You're jealous that all of the social status of being his partner belongs to his partner, that you don't also get to be his partner. You're his vice boyfriend, not his presidential boyfriend. And Breaking up is easy. You just say, I don't want to see you anymore. You just use your words. You say that out loud and it is over. You say it is over and it is over. You do not need someone's consent to end a relationship. You don't need their permission to dump them. As for whether you're friends or not, after it's all over, after you dump him, that's not something that you can control. So that's not something that you should worry about. You should dump him cleanly, uh, compassionately, sensitively, and don't let concern about losing him as a friend prevent you from losing him as a boyfriend because he sounds like a pretty shitty boyfriend and you do need to be rid of him. So use your words, open your mouth, it's over, and you are rid of him as a boyfriend. Hi, Dan. I am. I was currently listening to your podcast, sitting at a gas station, uh, texting the guy I've been dating for about a month and a half. And I thought, you know what? I really could use some help on this. Um, I've known this guy through the internet uh, for five years, and I'm working in the same city he is in. And I'm turning 22 this year, and he's turning 37. And I am feeling so overwhelmed by him. And I don't, like, he tells me that we're not, a couple and that we're not exclusive and that we're not together, but then I'll tell him, Oh, I'm crashing at a friend's house. I'm crashing at a guy's house. I'm crashing at so-and-so's house. And he will flip out. He will send me all these really guilt inducing texts. I've had boyfriends like this before. And I just, I don't know how to end relationships like this where I feel guilty for having more going for me. That sounds really shitty when I say that, but like, I just feel like, I feel like these people are being so needy and I, I want to care for them, but they're draining me. And I, this, this guy, I'm genuinely upset that he keeps doing this to me. This is like dating my emotionally abusive ex-husband. And I don't know how to get out of this. And I really, I don't know who to go to because everybody says, oh, he's so nice. This, this guy is so nice. He's older and so mature and so good for you. He seems so stable. 
just because he's there all the time doesn't mean he's stable. I don't know how to how to tell him I don't want to see you anymore, and I want to date other people, and I want to date casually because I have three more weeks left in the city, and I want to enjoy it. So I guess I kind of already said it already, but and this message is really rambly, but I would really appreciate some help on how to get the fuck out of this relationship early on, hit the abort button, just... I don't understand how to, like, to separate myself from these needy men. 1.5 months, you say, you've been dating this man for one and a half months. And he insists that it isn't a relationship and there's nothing official going on. And then he puts this guilty, shitty, insecure, slut-shamey zap on your head whenever you spend a moment in anyone else's presence. Uh, the other detail that just leapt out at me listening to your call was that you've known him for five years over the internet, internet friends for five years, and you are 22 now, and he is 37, which means you were 16 or 17 when this relationship, quote unquote, started when you met him and began to interact with him, and he was 32. So here's this 32-year-old adult man trawling the internet for teenage girls who can be more easily manipulated or groomed to put up with their manipulative controlling bullshit. And this is not like the previous caller, a hard problem to solve. You want out of this relationship. You don't want to be with shitty needy guys who treat you like this anymore. You've already gotten out of one abusive relationship. So you know how to get out of an abusive relationship. You say, I'm done. I'm out. It's over. And fuck you relying these guilt trips on me about this bullshit and you need to grow the fuck up and you need to stop trawling the internet for teenage girls. And I am no longer going to date you, see you, whatever it is that I am doing with you. Cause you say it's not a relationship, but then I have all these obligations and responsibilities and I have to answer to you as if we were in a relationship, as if I were in a relationship with a controlling dirtbag. Ta-da, I'm not in that relationship anymore because I'm calling it off. It is over. Jumping back into your call quickly, there was something you said that I couldn't quite understand and I had to go back over that little bit of tape uh, to, to finally figure out what it was you were saying. And you said, I feel guilty in your interactions with this guy. I feel guilty about having more going on for me. So what this guy is, I'm going to infer from that, is kind of a loser not a lot not a lot going on in his life, right? And he probably tells you that you're the best thing, the most important thing, the only thing, and makes you feel responsible for his personal happiness. And he flagellates himself and points out how vulnerable he is and how little he has in his life. Just you, even though he doesn't really want you in a relationship sense, but you owe him fealty in a relationship sense. When someone says that sort of shit to you, it is a trap. It is a hostage situation. They are taking themselves hostage in an effort to control you, to lock you down, to lock you up. And you can't allow that to happen. That's a red flag, especially a month and a half in. Although really, red flags began appearing five years ago when you were a teenage girl in high school and this 32-year-old man was reaching out to you over the interweb and was grooming you for just this, for just this kind of bullshit that, that, that he's inflicting on you now. 
you successfully pulling your strings. You are going to reach into your pocket. You're going to pull out a big fat fucking scissors and you're going to cut all those goddamn strings by saying to him, it's over. I'm not dating you anymore. And if he blows up or has a meltdown, delete, block. Don't return his phone calls and don't answer his emails. Don't respond to his texts. It's over. You're done. And one last quick aside, because I just listened to your call one more time. Your friend saying, oh, he's so nice. He's so stable, manipulative, controlling, abusive-ish boyfriends and girlfriends will often put on a big performance for the friends or family members of the person that they are abusing, manipulating, and controlling. It's one way of putting the zap on your victim's head because my friends all say he's lovely, but you know the dynamics inside the relationship when no one else is around, when it's just us two, are so awful. And yet my friends think he's great, so maybe uh, he's great. You begin to doubt your own better judgment. Don't let your friend's high opinion of this dirtbag cause you to doubt your much more informed opinions about this guy. They are not in relationship with him. He is not doing to them the deal-breaky, red-flaggy shit that he's doing to you because they, your friends, are not his girlfriend. And so they don't know and you shouldn't put too much stock in what they have to tell you about your boyfriend. Trust your gut and trust your sex advice podcaster and end this. Hey, um, I'm 27 year old, uh, straight male. Um, I have a question uh, about how I should talk to my girlfriend who has very bad body image, particularly relating to her vagina. Uh, she refuses to even let me look at it because she's convinced that it's the most hideous thing in the world. Um, We'll have sex, and uh, sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll finger her, for example, but definitely can't look at it, can't put my mouth near it, anything like that. So overall, she has relatively low self-esteem. She likes me a lot. We get along great, um, and I just want to be supportive of her. Um, to my knowledge, she was never physically abused. Um, she did have an ex-boyfriend once who told her that, he, that she had an ugly vagina. I think that might be part of it, but I'm not quite sure what the the whole thing is. Um, how how should I work through this with her? Um, do you think this is something that's a really big problem or something that I can get through? I'm not, I'm not sure. I expect that the ex-boyfriend is the problem here. And maybe what the ex-boyfriend said to your girlfriend about her vagina came on top of, you know, you don't say what faith she was raised or if she was raised in any faith. But if she's from, you know, a kind of slut-shamey, uh, female sexuality-shamey background or faith tradition that, you know, one comment from an earlier first sex partner can really just set that shame in stone and make it very hard to jackhammer it all up. And so, so my advice to you is it's going to be a, it's going to be a long campaign. You're going to have to wage war on her feelings of, of shame and her hangups about her vagina, about her pussy. Hmm. How old is she? You don't, you, you don't, you don't say how old she is. Yeah, she's 26. Okay. So she's still relatively young. And how long has she been sexually active? I'm going to guess um, the majority of her adult life. So since, I mean, I, I don't know exactly when she lost Virginia, but I'm, I think it was probably around 18 or so. Okay. So this is something that can be undone. It's just going to take time, and you're going to have to heap praise on her and tell her 
that vaginas come in all sorts of different configurations and, and, and appearances and that taste is subjective and that you love and want to love her vagina. And, and you should, there's a, actually a terrific book out there that people used to torment me with when I would say occasionally gynophobic <laughs> things in my column called Femalia. I don't know if it's still in print, but I'm sure you can get one on Amazon. And it's literally just a picture book of, of vaginas in all, in, in all their diverse glory. And so, and, and, it can, it, and it can undo a lot of the damage that porn does because porn can really like show us one vagina, one kind of vagina over and over and over again, just like porn shows us giant penises and no other kinds of penises over and over and over again. And it can, that can instill hangups. People can feel inadequate. And throwing Pamali at her and saying, look at these pussies. Oh, my God. They're all beautiful. And let me look at yours. Might help. Can I, can I add something? Yeah. Um, I, I, think, I think that she just has also just been so with an overall sense of female anatomy being ugly no matter what it looks like. So it might not even be specific towards hers, per se. So mm-hmm. I, remember, I think she might flip the book and say, these are all ugly like mine. <laughs> then you need to tell her that she's wrong, that it ain't ugly. That and she is a straight woman, or you know, or a straight or bi woman, who is with a mm. man who loves pussy, and she doesn't have to love pussy. She can be squicked out by pussy, but she has to let you love hers. It's part of what it's, I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> part of what you both bring to the table, right, is your bodies and your genitalia, and and you have to sort of love and accept and embrace and celebrate each other's bodies. And she's not ready for a party with the lights on and you know, streamers and searchlights outside the building for her vagina yet, but some, you know, baby steps toward embracing what's beautiful about her pussy. I would also recommend that she read Because It Feels Good by frequent Lovecast guest Debbie Herbenick um, and everything else Debbie Herbenick writes about uh, <laughs> vaginas and labia because she's very smart about it and it can help your girlfriend to embrace her own pussy. How awful to go through – you should say to her, do you really want to go through the next 50 years feeling this disconnect between you, all of you, and this really important part of you? Yes. And then I have some, I, then I have some kinky recommendations for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for you. Yeah. To, to, to acclimate herself to, you know, gradually baby steps, not hustling her along, not pushing her out of her comfort zones too quickly. But just, you know, is she comfortable with you having your nose near her navel? Is she comfortable with you being between her legs, facing her crotch when she's wearing jeans? Is she comfortable mm-hmm. with you then having your face between her crotch when she's wearing panties? And you can, I've been told by people who perform cunnilingus, do a pretty good job through a pair of panties. That's what mm. I've been told. No personal experience. Can't vouch for it myself. <laughs> but I've talked to people whose girlfriends had similar hangups or wives had similar hangups. And they would do a sort of, you know, a very slow approach to, you know, getting her used to the sensations and, 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 and the presence of, you know, the man's face between her legs. And I heard from people who were eating their wives or girlfriends' pussies through panties, sort of, you know, using their tongue and getting them a little damp and, and stimulating their clitorises and all of that without the panties having to come off right away. And a couple of orgasms like that may help her get to a place where she wants to take those panties off or is ready to. And the kinky thing I would add mm. to the mix then, and I've recommended this to some people in all sorts of different situations, is a blindfold that she's in charge of. 
Like maybe the first time the panties come off, you're going to wear a blindfold and it's not something you are allowed to take off yourself. Only she decides when that comes off. So she can experience being with you in a room with the lights on where she can see what you're doing. She can see her own body, but she doesn't have to. at, At that moment, when you first start going there, when she first starts having sex with you with the lights on, the lights are still off for you. And she doesn't have to worry about you ripping that blindfold off and turning the lights on for yourself. Give her some power and control over rolling out her vag as a visual thing for you and and really put that power in her hands and let her feel really comfortable and secure with you and and, and really demonstrate to her that you can be trusted with this insecurity of hers and you're going to take these baby steps with her for her. And who knows, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe it'll be a year or two before that blindfold can come off. Maybe she'll be letting you, you, you pleasure her through panties and then letting you pleasure her without panties with the lights on for her and the lights off for you for a, for a long time before she's ready. Also pot. I always like to recommend pot in situations like this. A little bit of pot. <laughs> even, if, even, if, <laughs> even if it doesn't help, it couldn't hurt, right? So long as she doesn't have a freak out or you do too much and she falls asleep. You know, alcohol, drugs, they get, it has a bad rap, you know, cause, and it should because there are people out there who've been taken advantage of and people who are so fucked up they can't consent who are then hustled along into sex acts or hustled along by people who sexually assault them. So, yeah, drugs and alcohol, that's, that's dicey. But people have inhibitions. Your girlfriend has a serious inhibition. And what do drugs and alcohol in moderation do? They take the edge off those inhibitions. That's why so much of our socializing is built around booze because people are – tense and inhibited and we need a little bit of that social lubricant to talk to strangers and meet each other and sometimes we need a little bit of that social lubricant to fuck this person we know well in the way that we would like to fuck them because we need to take that edge off and so i'm kind of a pot uh proselytizer in situations like this well i'll see what i'll see what i, what I can talk her into you know in a, you know <laughs> in a gentle way in a gentle way and I do think you should impress upon her that this is for her, but also for you, that there is pleasure here for you that not to guilt trip her and don't say it in a guilty way. And I I think I'm going to say it in a way that makes it sound a little guilty. There's pleasure here for you that her inhibition, her hang up is denying you. And it's, you know, a yin yang pleasure feedback loop, positive feedback loop where it's pleasure for you. And if she can overcome these inhibitions, also pleasure for her, but this is something you want to work on together for her sake and for your sake. And if you guys don't wind up together forever for the sake of her future partners, because how sad will it be to have sex in the dark for 50 years? So good luck. Give us a call back in six months when the blindfold comes off and tell us how it's going. Will do. Thanks a lot for, uh, for calling. What's your thing? Hi, Dan. I'm 24. going to be 25 here next month. And I'm calling in regards to my boyfriend and I. We've been dating technically since February, but... We have officially met in December, and he moved here from Seattle, Washington. I'm in Georgia, and he moved here for work in February. Um, after he moved here, we officially started dating and trying to get to know each other. But since we've met in person, he has not been sexual with me at all, not one bit. And I'm having a hard time with this because I'm a sexual being and he 
is now recently started on Kick. Uh, he hides his phone when he pulls up Kick, and it's really crazy um, because when we first started talking, he flat out told me that he wanted to have an open relationship. But I told him if he wants an open relationship, he's got to have sex with me, and then we can have the open relationship. But it seems like he's not taking it seriously, and I don't know what to do. He says he's attracted to me, you know, because I'm physically disabled. There are times where he'll help me get in the shower and he'll jerk me off in the shower. But to me, sometimes that feels like a chore. And, you know, sometimes he tells me that, you know, he he feels like a caregiver with me and that that's my fault when I've done everything I can to show him that I've never seen him that way. And I love him to pieces. Um, I don't. I don't know what else to do. I love him to pieces and I would do anything for him. But now I feel like I'm being, you know, taken advantage of because he has access to my phone and pulls up my phone whenever he feels like it. But I never, ever have access to his phone. I don't even remember what his phone passcode is, but somehow he manages to remember mine. Because I want to know, am I being cheated on, even emotionally? I just want to sit with my boyfriend. That's what it boils down to. I don't care who he talks to. I don't care if he trades pics. I just want to be intimate with my boyfriend, and I don't know what to do. Should I break up with him? Should I confront him? My therapist says to write it out. I don't know what to do, Dan. Help me out. I worry that you're being taken advantage of as well, but but my hunch is it's not about phones, that it's not that he has access to your phone and you don't have access to his. That is how he's taking advantage of you, if indeed he is. What I'm curious about is you say he moved to Georgia, where you live, from Seattle, Washington, where he lived, uh, for a job. Are you supporting him? Is he living with you rent-free? Is there some other way in, in which he's benefiting from this relationship with you financially? That said, you say since his arrival, you two haven't been sexual in any way, not one bit. And then later you say – he helps you shower and sometimes when he helps you shower, he jacks you off. He masturbates you. Well, that is sexual. That's sexual. Uh, it doesn't sound like it's the kind of intimacy that you want with someone that you regard as your boyfriend. It's not sexual intercourse. It sounds like you feel like he's just assisting you in masturbation or milking you to shut you up or keep you happy. And that's not the kind of intimacy that will make you happy. And if he is incapable of providing you with that kind of intimacy – if he is not attracted to you or if he is attracted to you but the only way he can express that is this very limited way that all he wants to do is be your caretaker with this one erotic sort of component overlaid of mutual masturbation or even one directional masturbation, not so mutual. He's just masturbating you. That's not what you want. That's not enough for you. That's not what you want in a relationship. So it seems to me – contrary your therapist that it might be time to end this and you don't necessarily have to end it in an explosive way you guys were dating technically you say for a long time before you met i think what you mean was a year ago last february you guys met and began to talk online and then officially he moved where you are in december and and that's when you met so it's been about a half a year since you guys met each other I don't want to say he's a terrible person. I don't know any of the other details. I don't know if he's taking advantage of you in some other way besides just this unequal telephone relationship. And it's possible he's not. You know, he's got a job. He moved there and he's taking care of you. He could just be self-conscious about the fact that 
you know, when he arrived, he was less attracted to you than he was when you guys were having your online relationship or less attracted to you physically than he thought he would be. And he doesn't want to break your heart. He doesn't want to disappoint you, but he also doesn't want to not have sex ever again with people that he is attracted to. So he's drawing this out. He's telling you that he is attracted to you to be kind. He's telling you that he wants to be with you because he doesn't know how to extricate himself from this relationship without hurting you. And he doesn't want to hurt you. And as is almost always the case in those situations where people stay in a relationship because they don't want to hurt somebody, they wind up hurting that person worse. It winds up even being more painful because that person knows, can just sense that it's not working and that they're being told one thing but they're picking up all sorts of cues that something else is going on and then they end up feeling like they're crazy or they're the crazy one. They're being gaslit by their partner. So I – so my advice to you would be not just to dump the guy but to have an all-cards face-up-on-the-table conversation with this guy. And the way you draw him out about what's really going on is you address the worst-case scenario and you tell him that if this is indeed the case, you're fine with that and that you guys can still be friends and that you can still be in touch with each other. And that he doesn't have to move out right away if indeed he moved in with you. But you just say to him, look, if you were attracted to me online, if you were attracted to my pictures and then you got here and it just didn't work, if we didn't click chemically, physically – and that happens to all sorts of people whose initial connection is online. They get together and it just doesn't click chemically, physically. And it's not necessarily about disability or anything else or any other physical thing. It would just be a chemical thing. And so if you and I finally met and just – it didn't click. We didn't click for you, just be honest and let's extricate ourselves from this relationship. Let's break up like grownups and stay friends. I would like to stay friends. You've known him for a year and a half. You've had this relationship. You guys have been intimate, if not as intimate as you would like to have been. And you don't have to throw that all away. But you need to open the door in a calm and rational way without a lot of Drama or accusations, open the door and say, if you want to walk out that door, you can. And we can still be good to each other. So be friends. But if you want to leave, if this isn't what you wanted, if I'm not what you want, you can tell me that and I won't be shattered. And then see what he says. And then make a decision. What he says is, I don't want to go anywhere, but I'm only interested in you in this very limited way sexually is that a price of admission that you are then willing to pay? That your boyfriend, your sex partner has sex with other guys but with you it's just physical intimacy and occasional masturbation and a relationship? The living together, the day-to-day -day stuff? Are you willing to settle for that? Is it a price of admission you're willing to pay? If not, then you end it. You take that exit. You go through that door. Good luck, man. Sorry you're in this tough spot. Dear sweet Dan Savage, I'm a 23-year-old woman, historically straight in practice, but again, 23, so there's a lot of sex to still have. I'm calling because uh, I'm an American woman, girl, living in Taiwan. Uh, my life is in an impermanent place right now. Uh, it has been for a couple of years, and it's had weird effects on my love life. Um, I've been seeing a guy now for about four months. He's also American. 
and he's leaving to go back to America in another four months, and I am not. And it's hit me recently how serious he's gotten. When I try to talk to him about it in a logical, realistic way, I feel like he clams up and, you know, sort of says, he, you know, he doesn't care what I call him, but he's going to keep calling me his girlfriend because that's what I am. That's what it feels like. But I, I'm not because he's leaving. And this has happened to me in the past in other places too. And I just, I don't know what to do. I guess I just get so caught up in the happy fact of having loads of sex again and I'm not worried about committing or not committing. Do I like Mandy Moore, a walk to remember every new guy I start seeing? Like, just to warn you, don't fall in love with me because that seems so douchey. But what do you do in this situation? Huh. <sighs> I don't mind committing if there's a what if, you know, a hope for the future, but with a definite expiration date, I'm a bang, you know, what do you do? I'd love to still sleep with this guy, but I just, I don't think he's going to go for casual. I hadn't really ever heard of Mandy Moore's A Walk to Remember, so I had to Google that after listening to your call. Apparently, it's a film that came out way, way back in 2002, set in North Carolina, following the rite of passage of a jaded, aimless high school senior, Shane West, who falls in love with a guileless young woman, Mandy Moore. He and his friends once scorned. The two develop a powerful, inspirational relationship in which they discover truths that take most people a lifetime to learn. I like to say that I learn as much from my uh, listeners and readers as they learn from me, and I learned all about this okay romantic comedy from 13 years ago because of you. So I thank you for that. Okay. So this guy that you're dating in Taiwan, you know, you can keep fucking him if you want to keep fucking him. He has said he has consented to there being kind of a feelings imbalance, a Fifi imbalance here where he feels as if you are his girlfriend. He has girlfriendy feelings for you and he's going to call you his girlfriend, but he's not insisting that you at this moment must reciprocate that you at this moment must feel the same way about him. He's not demanding that you regard him or call him your boyfriend. So you can allow that to just be, and you can continue to fuck him with an open mind and an open twat and see what happens. See how you feel in four months, just because you're not necessarily feeling it now. Doesn't mean that you won't be feeling it in four months. And it also, if it goes on for another four months, it doesn't mean you can't end it then. So enjoy the sex. Don't encourage him to make any faulty assumptions. Don't start telling him that you feel as strongly about him as he does about you. And just let it be. Let it unfold. If at some point you become convinced that there is no way in hell you could ever be with this guy and just fucking him is to encourage him in his false hopes for something more serious, maybe then you could end it. But right now, you can just say to him, hey, I really like you. I really love the sex. It's really good spending time with you. Let's just let this be what it is and continue to hang out, and then we'll see. We'll see. And then when he goes home, you can pull the plug if you want to pull the plug. But there are lots of people out there who felt the way you feel now about someone they had only been dating for two, three, four months, and two, three, four months later – we're head over heels in love and 10, 15, 20 years later are still together. Not that long-term relationships or something becoming a long-term relationship or an open-ended relationship is the sole measure of a relationship's validity or success. 
We support the short-term relationship as a wonderful, positive thing in a person's life. And this could end up being a short-term, eight-month relationship and still really good for you and good for him. So just let it be and enjoy it while it lasts. Hi, Dan. Uh, John here. I'm on again, off again, listener, first-time caller. Uh, My wife listens to you all the time. uh, We've been married for 10 years. Uh, We're both under 30 and got together in college. Throughout these wonderful years, we have dabbled in this and that to spice things up and are now a huge turning point in our relationship. Uh, we've even discussed the uh, idea of a third or group play, but once we sat down and hashed out, it was clear that she is into single relationships with other people. Uh, so she brought up the monogamish relationship idea. Uh, when she first pitched it to me, though, she uh, pulled the whole wild oats line which sent me into a downward spiral of self-loathing for however long it took me to sprint one mile. Um, but after we talked about it further and I cooled my jets, I realized I hadn't soiled any OC either. And uh, I, all caps, might be into it. Uh, she said it would be a two-way street um, if I wanted, and that she is 100% okay to not pursue any itch, itch if I wasn't okay with it, uh, I guess. The real thing is, is I'm just kind of insecure about losing her to someone else. I love her mode of life, and I want her to be fulfilled in every way. I know she loves me just as much, if not more. Um, we're a great team, but the thought of her finding someone else who, who uh, she could love more than me still lingers at the back of my mind. Uh, it's a relatively new conversation we've had. Um, we've chatted about it a little bit, but um, I was just wondering if you... Being in a monogamous relationship yourself at any pointers or insight about where to go next. You bring up my monogamous relationship. And so I'm inclined now to discuss my monogamous relationship, much to the consternation of my monogamous partner. And I have to own up. I can't talk about it without owning up to uh, some hypocrisy because I'm off. Whenever somebody calls me who's 23 years old and they're thinking about getting married or thinking about making a long-term commitment to someone that they've only recently just met, I tell that person that they're fucking crazy, that that is too young to marry, that that kind of young marriage leads to young divorce. And 23 is too young. And if you meet somebody at 23 that you want to be with, you need to have at least a 10-year engagement before you do anything. Serious. And the irony of all of this is that I met Terry when he was 23 years old and I was 30 and it wasn't too long into our relationship, about a year and nine months in that we started to initiate the adoption process with the expectation that it would take us five to seven years to obtain a human infant, which is what the adoption agency told us. And we actually got one after we turned in our paperwork in five weeks. So that was all a little rushed, but it worked out. All that said – Like you and your wife, Terry and I married kind of young. I wasn't as young as Terry, but we committed kind of young. We were monogamous for a long time. And there came sort of a wild oats moment where we were sort of working through what it meant to be together for decades and for us to be in this relationship. And monogamy was very important to my husband at first. I've written about this in books that Terry okayed, so I feel okay talking about it now, but it makes me very nervous. I wrote about it in books that we were monogamous at first and that we were not monogamous. And part of that shift to non-monogamy for Terry was that he didn't really get to be gay in his 20s. He didn't really get to do in his 20s the stuff that most gay men do in their 20s. He didn't get to sow his wild oats. And this wasn't a problem for me uh, as an adjustment in the way that I think it's a problem for you. But in his 30s, 
I had to let him be, you know, have his twenties, do the stuff that he hadn't done in his twenties. I had to let him be free. And it was fine with me. I had no problem with it. In fact, I enjoy it and it's great and it's not an issue. But if it had been an issue for me, if I didn't want to allow him to do that, if I couldn't sign off on it, I couldn't give permission, that could have become a tension that ultimately, you know, destroyed our relationship. It could have been, you know, a fissure into which you drove a wedge. A fissure. We just talked about anal fissures on the show. You don't want to drive a wedge into an anal fissure. That would be very painful. But it could have it could have been it could have become a problem. And it wasn't a problem because it wasn't a problem for me. And so this desire on Terry's part to have his twenties didn't mean that he had to end the relationship to have these other things in his life and orifices that he desired to have in his life and his orifices. So here you are with your wife and what to do. Well, you guys have been together 10 years. You're both under 30, which means you got together in your teens. And it sounds like your wife wants now as her 30s approach what Terry wanted when his 30s arrived. He wants to have his 20s. She wants to have her 20s. And she'd like to have them without having to give you up. She would like to have them and have you too. And she's offering you yours as well without having to give her up. But you're nervous. What if she falls in love with someone else? You're insecure about the potential of losing her to someone else. I'm not going to be Panglossian about this or Pollyanna about this or any other P words about this. I do think that there may be an elevated risk of her meeting and falling in love with someone else if she's actually fucking other people. That emotions can get wrapped up in that. Definitely that can happen. But there's nothing about being monogamous, whether you're successfully monogamous or not, that necessarily protects you from that potentiality. Your wife could still meet and fall in love with someone else. Even while you're monog- even as she's honoring your monogamous commitment to one another, she could meet and fall in love with someone else. Happens all the time. People leave their spouses for someone else. So keeping her locked down, keeping your relationship locked down, sticking with the monogamy that's worked for you thus far isn't necessarily going to protect you from this thing that you fear most. And paradoxically, allowing her to have other people while having you too could protect you from that thing you fear, that she may leave you for someone else. Not someone specific, but she, in her late 20s, hitting her sexual peak, regretting on some level, and people in long-term relationships have regrets. It doesn't mean they don't love their partners. It doesn't mean they regret the relationship, but they have regrets. Regretting on some level the stuff she missed out on earlier in life, getting to be with more than one guy her entire life. If she can't have that, She may leave you for a man to be named later. She may leave you for no one. She may leave you just to have those things in her life that she missed out on, to have those experiences that she missed out on. If the choice is stay with me and never have that stuff or leave me and have that stuff, people will leave for that stuff. All that said, what I think that you and the wife need to have a talk about is how you prioritize your relationship if indeed you're going to have sex with other people and have relationships with those other people. It's going to be monogamous or poly. Most women don't feel comfortable, nor should they necessarily, because men are testosterone-soaked violence monsters, having sex with just randoms. She may want to vet and get to know a guy before she feels comfortable crawling into bed with him. So there is going to be the establishment of some sort of relationship there. 
And women that you sleep with may feel the same way, that they're not going to want to be with you until they get to know you a bit and feel comfortable and safe with you. So you may have these relationships with women. And then how do you, in that context of both of you engaging with emotionally and sexually other people, make sure that your relationship with each other doesn't wither, that it's still you're both of your number one priorities by talking, by communicating at all times. It can help when you're just beginning to open up or be not monogamous to take tiny, tiny, tiny little baby steps. It can help for both of you to have a veto over each other's prospective other partners um, because what you fear is losing control and offering each other some degree of control over the other people you might be sleeping with can make that feel better, can make you feel more in control because you have some control so you feel more in control. Not hard to unpack that or figure it out, right? Typically, as people get more secure in their newly open relationship, they let go of those controls. They become less important over time because right now you fear your wife is going to run out, uh, meet somebody else, like that person a lot, fuck that person, and like that person more than she likes you and not come home to you. Run off with that person. The balm for that fear is your wife going out, liking somebody, fucking somebody else, liking that person a lot and coming home to you and still fucking you and still liking you and perhaps even liking you more because being with you means she can have you, your history together, your relationship, the stability, the intimacy, the hot sex that she has with you and have that guy too. It makes you more valuable and more desirable a partner in her eyes than that other guy is. Because you mean she can have it all. She doesn't have to pick between you and him. And hopefully, you know, if it's a healthy, open relationship and you guys are putting each other first, if she is with somebody who says, me or him, you have to pick, she will understand that to be a shitty manipulative move and she will pick you, knowing there are other hymns out there. And she doesn't have to run off with somebody who is not respecting her commitment to her husband and playing that kind of game, playing that card. Get talking. Get talking to each other. I've recommended it a lot. I'll recommend it again. Tristan Taramino's excellent book, Opening Up. You might want to start there and have fun. Your marriage is entering into a new phase. It's going to be a big new adventure and you should be, both of you, you can execute this correctly. If you can always prioritize each other, you should allow yourselves to both be very excited about this. Hi, Dan. Straight male in the Northwest. I'm 22 and wanted to ask you a question about the role of masturbation in the bedroom. I'm able to have an orgasm with a partner, but I often take what feels like much longer than my female partners during anything other than penetrative sex. I'm a fan of doing and having all things done to me in the bedroom, but I often end up bringing myself to orgasm, usually whenever my partner gets sore or tired. I guess I would either like to come faster or avoid my partner expecting me to get myself off. I've gently talked about this with partners I've had with varying degrees of success. Should I be limiting how much I masturbate alone, which is about daily, or keeping my hands off myself to during sex to avoid setting a precedent for future sex with a partner? Uh, I had a follow-up question for you, a, a point I wanted you to clarify. You said that you... This is a problem that you have. It takes you forever to come when it's not penetrative sex. So when it's penetrative sex, when you're having vaginal intercourse, this isn't a problem. You're talking about mutual masturbation or oral sex, right? That's when it's a problem? Yes, that is when it's a problem. And people's arms get tired. People's jaws get tired. 
That's a thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't think the solution is masturbate less necessarily. Okay. Because that's what, what I was planning on trying because I was worried that I had um, the death grip masturbation thing. Death grip masturbation syndrome would not just make you uh, take forever to come when you were uh, getting oral or masturbate, you know, uh, masturbation, you know, hand job. That usually also uh, makes it take forever for somebody to come during penetrative sex. And it's also usually more of a problem for penetrative sex because, um, uh, you know, the inside of a vagina and ass is a lot less like a hand than a hand does. So if she's using her hand on you and can tighten her fist as tight as you tighten yours and go as fast as you would go, it wouldn't be a problem. You know, this just doesn't say death grip masturbation problem. What this says to me is this is how your dick works. That penetrative sex, the combo of the sensations and the emotions, you know, what's going on between your ears, your arousal level, that this thing sort of gooses you a little bit, that those combine to get you there. But oral, which is a totally different sensation, and, and a hand job, which is a totally different sensation, they don't have the same juice as sensations alone or the same between the ear juice, but the same arousal that penetrative sex has for you. The same way okay. it engages your brain and your dick, right? And I think the courteous thing to do when you know that you take forever and you're going to exhaust people with these other two things is to fold in some masturbation. Don't make them go and go and go forever until they give up and then you have to resort to masturbation. But to mm-hmm. work the masturbation into the oral and into the hand job, where you construct yourself for a while, where you're building breaks into it and getting yourself closer to that point of orgasmic inevitability, they call it, when you're going to go over the falls and there's no stopping you, even if you're mother and a marching band burst into the room, you're still going to blow your load, right? (laughs) To help get yourself a little closer to that. So when, you know, so that at some point when you're shifting back and forth between your hand and her mouth to give her mouth a break or her hands in her mouth to give her mouth a break, you can shift back to her mouth for the last minute or minute and a half and still climax and still get there. Okay. This is a, you know, when we talk about women, some women need powerful vibrators. Some women need a vibrator period or a toy. Women can't climax from uh, vaginal intercourse alone or vaginal penetration. They need focus direct clitoral stimulation, sometimes very intense. Like women learn how their bodies work or should with the encouragement of their partners, male or female. And then they just have to accept it. There are some women out there who are only going to be able to come if there's a vibrator in play too. So fuck her and you use a vibrator on her at the same time or encourage her to use the vibrator on herself. You just like learn how your body works Determine whether it's this is how it works or I've created a problem for my body. And if it's the latter, work on the problem. But if it's the former, just how your body works, love it, accept it, incorporate it, uh, create accommodations for your partners if there's going to cause problems for them around exhaustion. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what you need to do. Just an accommodation or two. And nothing you should be ashamed of. That makes sense. What I'm hearing is that um, I can switch up a little bit between oral and masturbation or Mutual masturbation and then personal masturbation. Right. And you know what you say to the women that you're with? You say, it takes me forever to come when I get a blowjob always has. And so, you know, I don't want to exhaust you. or <laughs> So let me, you know, work in my own right hand every once in a while. It's not that your blowjob isn't excellent. It's just the way my dick works. And I can't okay. imagine there's a lot of women out there who are going to storm out of the room in a huff for you being considerate and not fucking their jaws off. Okay. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Good luck with your deck. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old American girl living in Germany. I'm wondering about the best tactics for dealing with men who are in positions of power over you who are hitting on you. My question stems from a couple of interactions I've had with a former college professor. 
I liked this professor a lot in college and had many classes with him. And I've kept in polite contact with him over the last couple of years with the practical goal of asking him to write me a recommendation for grad school. A couple of months ago, I saw him here in Germany. His work brings him here. He massively overshared about his relationship with his wife, and I thought he might have been hitting on me, but I wasn't sure, because he's always been a pretty awkward guy. During this interaction, we also talked about my plans for grad school, and he agreed to write me a recommendation. When I contacted him a few months after this interaction to check on the recommendations, he sent me an email that both confirmed that he would write the recommendation and suggested that we have an affair. I handled it by ignoring his advances and only responding to what he'd written about the recommendation, and this worked pretty well. He's written the recommendation and sent it, but he's also texted me since asking to meet up. I think I've basically dealt with this situation, but I'm more concerned about dealing with situations like this in the future. A number of my female friends have encouraged me to call in because we've all either dealt with things like this already or expect to in the future. Any advice you have would be appreciated. I don't want to excuse what this guy did, but I don't want to misrepresent what this guy did either. I think what he did was shitty and opportunistic and subtly coercive or perhaps not so subtly coercive. But you're not currently a student. You have maintained a friendly, cordial, friendly, friendly relationship with him since you were his student because you wanted ultimately – you knew your long-term plan was to – leverage that friendship and get a letter of recommendation out of him later. And then he, when you asked for that letter of recommendation, after he overshared about his relationship with his wife and you're an adult and he's an adult and adults tend to share stuff about their relationships with people that they think are their friends. He said, I will write you a letter of recommendation. Certainly. Would you like to fuck? I don't think he said, because I believe you would have said, if he said, I will write you this letter of recommendation After you fuck me, if you fuck me, I will write that letter of recommendation. So there was no quid pro quo, explicit quid pro quo thrown on the table. However, you knew that there was something you wanted from him and he, when he agreed to give you what you wanted, told you what he wanted from you. And that is shitty and coercive and potentially an abuse of residual power and institutional authority. We're no longer his student. You're not necessarily dependent on him for the only letter of recommendation you can get from anywhere in the whole world. Other professors, other people out there you can get letters of recommendation from. But it's creepy and it's wrong. And you wonder if somebody who would do that to a former student, what would they do to a current student potentially? And he might say, I would never do that to a current student because I would get fired. But ex-students, former students, whatever. Not There's no institutional authority there to abuse. We're just friends now. Sometimes friends overshare and sometimes friends make passes at friends. All that said, if I were in your shoes, it would have creeped me out and it would have made me not want to be in any sort of relationship, casual, professional at all anymore with this guy. I wouldn't want to be beholden to him in any way. I wouldn't want his letter of recommendation after I got that email of solicitation from him in response to my request for that letter of recommendation. So what should you do? Well, I think if it was a more black and white situation, I think if you were currently his student, I think if it was presented as a quid pro quo, you should go to his bosses. You should go to the administrators at his university. You should turn him in. But his behavior seems to fall just outside that line of 
not mandatory reporting. You're not a mandatory reporter. Dandatory reporting. Dan would tell you to report, right? It seems to fall just outside that line that he's tiptoed up to it but hasn't stepped over it. That said, I'm on the fence here. I'm just going to like <laughs> – I'm playing tennis with myself. I'm running from one side of the net to the other side of the net and lobbing the ball back and forth. That said, I would worry that he may be doing this to other students who are current students, who are his grad students, who are – more easily coerced, who are in uh, positions under him and potentially being exploited by him. So part of me thinks, well, yeah, you should take this to the university anyway because if there's a pattern here, if other students have complained, this could be one more piece of evidence in the growing pile of evidence that they have against him that they will use to get him out of there so he can stop abusing his power. And if you go to them and it's just this and he's never done this ever before with anyone, he's not coercing any of his current students, there's been no complaints and he's brought up before the administration at his university and they're like, what the fuck? He can say, we're adults, we're friends. She asked for a letter of recommendation. I gave it to her. I didn't demand that she fuck me for it. I also would have liked to fuck her, but I didn't demand it. Maybe he could talk his way out of trouble if indeed he isn't abusing his authority. If indeed his conduct has been reprehensible and skeezy, but not fireable, not a fireable offense necessarily. So you called asking me what I would do and I, I am not sure. I am not sure what I would do. You know, when one of your advice professionals doesn't know quite what to do, sometimes it's a good idea to get a second opinion from another one of your advice professionals. And one of the tech savvy at risk youth who I consider advice professionals because they lurk in this room as we produce the podcast and sometimes when we turn off the mics, they whisper in my ears, suggest that instead of doing nothing, instead of going to the administration, that you write to him and you say, don't do this. This is fucked up. You could get in really big trouble. I didn't appreciate your response to my request for a letter of recommendation coming bundled with a request for sex and that's really inappropriate and not professional and I regard our relationship as a friendly professional relationship. And just a heads up, you could get in big ass trouble, particularly if you did this to somebody who is a current student or a grad student of yours. And I hope you're not doing things like that. That maybe that there is a place the tech savvy at risk youth here is suggesting in between nothing and potentially nuking his career for what might've been a one-off error of judgment on his part. And that's to, Speak directly to him to ask him not to contact you anymore by text, never to bring this sex stuff up again and put the fear of God into him. And maybe that'll get him to straighten up, zip up and fly right. We're going to take a quick break from your calls because we have a guest here in the studio. Matt Baum is a writer, a blogger, a photographer, a videographer and an activist. He wrote and produced Marriage News Watch a video series for the American Foundation for Equal Rights. It was basically an essential weekly news update about the state of the battle for marriage equality in the United States. He did that for eight years, and he's just brought out his first book, Defining Marriage, Voices from a 40-Year Labor of Love. Thank you for coming in. Hey, thanks for having me. So tell me about the book. Well, so the book's been in the works for a long time. It's basically a, 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 the stories of people who have fought to change marriage over the last 40 or so years and also the story of how fighting for marriage changed their lives. So it's an oral history. It's interviews with people who were 
essential in the movement, movers and shakers. It's uh, a real mix. People. Yeah. It's um, so I've got some of the real key players there. I've got um, Chad Griffin, who's now at HRC. I've got Rob Reiner, who was involved in the prop eight lawsuit. Uh, I have Kate Kendall and Cleela Rorex and uh, Ken Melman. And I have you in the book. You got to have an idiot. You I have to <laughs> at least one idiot to, to, to set the bar. There are no idiots in the book. And then, <laughs> and then I have just regular folks, uh, people who just found their lives intersecting with the movement, like, like Amy Balliette, who is, you know, a graphic designer and, suddenly found herself leading Join the Impact the next week. What does what Join the Impact? Join the Impact was uh, a reaction to Prop 8 passing. So mm-hmm. there was this sort of collective period of mourning where everyone was going through the stages of grief about Prop 8. And one of those stages was um, one day uh, Amy Balliette, who was a recent graduate from college. Uh, her friends were talking about how upset they were that Prop 8 had passed. Amy had just married her wife. Um, and one of her friends said, oh, we should send these letters to LGBT centers and ask them to do something. And uh, Amy said, why don't we do something. And she was thinking, okay, we'll get some, like, a dozen people together. Uh, and that turned into millions of people over, the, like, one week, because everyone was looking for some way to react to Prop 8. Um, and so she was right place, right time, and, and uh, formed a movement. And then as soon as that happened, she was like, and now I'd like to go back to my regular life, please. <laughs> There's another person you interview in the book whose, I think, role in the marriage equality movement is both A, forgotten, and B, uh, undervalued by people who do remember Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom is one of the great insufficiently sung heroes of the marriage movement. And who was he for people he who was, forgotten? Yes, he was the mayor of San Francisco um, in 2004. And I lived in San Francisco at the time and vividly recall how he was supposed to be the conservative choice for the mayorship. I mean, only in San Francisco is the the Democrat who is, you know, is going to uh, defy the president of the United States to marry LGBT couples, the, the conservative one. Um, but uh, And that's what he did. And, and for people who don't know, San Francisco is a city and a county. It's sort of a city-state. It's a rare thing in the United States where the city government is the county government and the mayor is the head of the county as well. And what he did was he just said by his reading the Constitution of California, the United States, there's nothing in there barring same-sex couple from marrying. And he ordered the county to start issuing marriage licenses to same-sex couples. And it was this huge scene and an enormous national story as couples poured into San Francisco's city hall, flew in from around the country to go to San Francisco's iconic and historic city hall to get married. Yeah, it was just remarkable. I remember being in San Francisco at the time and you just drive by on the bus and lines just around City Hall, like people standing in the rain from all over the world. Uh, and what's remarkable is uh, Gavin did this because uh, he was at the State of the Union in D.C. George Bush said he endorsed a federal constitutional ban on marriage. Uh, and so Gavin flew back to San Francisco and said, oh, boy, we got to do something about this. Fuck that guy. Yeah, exactly. He flew back to San Francisco and said, well, fuck we all were guy. saying after George Bush got reelected, <laughs> fuck that guy. For eight years we were saying that, yeah. Like Newsom fucked Actually Newsom did something, did about, something it. about it. Yeah, and what's remarkable too is that a lot of the LGBT people that uh, Newsom spoke to were opposed to this. They said, I don't think this is a good idea. People forget s- that now. Yeah. Like there's a lot of grousing on sort of the far queer radical left that the marriage equality movement was the, was imposed by FR, by the, the big organizations and wealthy gay white men, those evil wealthy gay white men. And the actual truth is marriage at for the first 20 years was this grassroots, radical, individual, very personal movement in the mainstream organizations and the money guys and gals were opposed to it. Yeah, exactly. Um, when uh, Nania and Janora, this lesbian couple in Hawaii, filed a lawsuit in 91 – they went to organizations and said, we want to do this. Um, one of us is sick and needs the health care of the other one. We want to file this lawsuit against Hawaii. And organizations said, no, I don't think so. 
National Gay and Lesbian Task Force said, I don't think so. Lambda Legal said, I don't think so. ACLU. HRC said, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. They were all not interested in marriage. It took a, a bunch of very brave folks and uh, diverse folks like Evan Wolfson, who was uh, you know, a young attorney at the time, and shockingly, Andrew Sullivan, who was a conservative uh, gay man um, who was assigned this piece to write about uh, the conservative case for gay marriage. Uh, sort of as a joke, like, well, shouldn't be conser- conservatives be in favor of this conservative institution? Uh, and uh, really made an enemy uh, on both sides. Uh, a lot of conservatives were like, absolutely not. This is terrible. And a lot of queers were, were this, is a, this is a heteronormative institution. We want nothing to do with this. Uh, we, being gay needs to be um, more radical than, than the heterosexual thing. It's about marriage. liberating ourselves from institutions, exactly, patriarchal exactly. institutions like marriage. You know, we're going to remake the culture, and what people seem to lose sight of is that we could also remake the culture of marriage, which exactly. is what I think same-sex couples have done and are doing. And I think we're doing it in part by forcing straight people to finally own up to and accept not how we redefine marriage, but how they had already redefined. Oh marriage. yeah, yeah, it's fluid and plastic, and, and we make the rules. Right, and not just us queers. No, it's everyone. fluid and plastic, and straight people make the rules. Uh, marriage is whatever two people in it say that it is, and that's how it was even before gay marriage was on anyone's radar for about fifty years. Straight people redefined marriage sometime in the middle oh, of the twentieth century. For four thousand years, people have been redefining marriage, but you know. <laughs> but the most radical redefinition, oh, which yeah. is women are not property, uh-huh. and we are equal and autonomous individuals, mm-hmm. and you don't own me. Mm-hmm. That radical redefinition came only, uh, I think, less than 100 years ago. Yeah, it's quite new. I mean, it was um, a a little more than 100 that um, South Carolina, I think, was the first state to say, oh, maybe husbands shouldn't be allowed to beat their wives. And uh, Really? South Carolina was in front on an issue like that? Can you believe that? (laughs) Progressive beacon of hope, South Carolina. Um, And and yeah, so, you know, these things reflect changing society. Marriage reflects how we change and make ourselves better as a people. And it takes a long time. The arc of history is is gradual. But, you know, as we improve as a people, uh, marriages reflect our own societal improvements. South Carolina changed the law and said maybe you shouldn't beat their wife. Did they say, you know, when you feel like beating your wife, just go hang up another Confederate flag. Just like <laughs> get it out that way. Yeah, you know, these things take time. <laughs> so your book, these interviews with yeah. all these fascinating people who have been involved, uh, grassroots, couples you've never heard of, individuals who are activized by Prop 8. Is it a resource for future historians? Is it a read for the average reader? Yeah. What's your goal for the book? Uh, well, so it, it can be all those things. Uh, on, for one thing, it's it's a record of just where we were at this amazing moment in history and what it was like to live through it and how it affected people to be there. And people are, I think, already forgetting. Mm. This this breakthrough on marriage, uh, the Supreme Court decision on June 26th, it reminds me of not, and this is going to sound crazy, reminds me of nothing so much as the fall of the Berlin Wall which no, everybody thought that would never happen. Nobody thought that could ever happen. The day after it happened, everyone was like, well, yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. You know, people protest and people power and in the streets and the government falls. Mm-hmm. And, and we just took it now, like looking back in hindsight, it looks like a foregone conclusion that the Berlin Wall would come down, that Gorbachev, I'm really dating myself, wouldn't send the tanks into the streets. There would be no Tiananmen solution in Alexanderplatz in Berlin. And it just feels like that now, like just a couple of months, not even after this decision, uh, Kennedy's decision, uh, recognizing a constitutional right for same-sex couples in all 50 states to marry. It just feels like, oh, yeah, obviously. There's- it didn't feel so obvious 10 months ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Then it felt like a, a dream. It felt like a fool's errand. That's what That was why the mainstream gay organizations – opposed it. They thought it was a fool's errand. They thought it would never happen and we would waste all this time, money and resources fighting for it and never get it. 
So we should keep wasting time, money, and resources fighting for ENDA, which we never got mm-hmm. until the Obama administration handed it to us last week, which we're not going to get into. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, you know, 30 years ago, it didn't just feel like a dream. It was a joke. When uh, I've got a story in the book about uh, wonderful Cleela Rorex, who's another unsung hero. Uh, she was a clerk in Boulder, Colorado in 1973. She's recently elected. And she was, I mean, it was a real right place, right time. She was elected because someone told her, well, only a man can run for this office. And she's like, well, I'll show you. And so she ran and she won. Um, and in part because uh, college students had just uh, gained the vote in Boulder and they really liked this plain-talking young uh, Democrat. And so she was there. She had never met an out gay person in her life when these two men walked into her office and said, we'd like to get married. And her position was essentially, well, I don't see why not. And so she looked into it and she's like, sure, sure, we'll do it. And there was nothing in state law that said it had to be a man and a woman, just two people. Uh, Yeah. And so her, you know, she talked to her attorney and said, "Um, yeah, I guess there's no, (laughs) I don't see anything in here. I can just imagine like the panic and the flurry of like (laughs) flipping through these books. And, you know, the, some of the couples, uh, one of them, um, Richard and Tony, Richard Sullivan and Tony Adams, I may have those last names flipped, but. Um, so they were married uh, back in 73 and uh, one of them passed away. The other is a foreign-born citizen and he maintains to this day that the license was valid uh, and the government to this day is still contesting that. It is over 40 years later and the government is still wasting their time trying to decide, well, maybe this guy doesn't belong in the U.S. Any other unsung heroes that are in the book besides Gavin Newsom, this couple in Hawaii, any other people – Who's? I think I'm pretty familiar with the the history of the movement. I've been pretty involved in it. Is there anybody who I'm not going to know who the fuck they are until I read the book and read their story? I think everyone needs to know about Thalia Zapatos. Um, and it's never heard of her. Who is she? So she's this wonderful woman. She was working on progressive causes in Oregon for many years. Uh, a lot of her work was around uh, reproductive freedom, and uh, she got pulled into this campaign in the 90s about uh, non discrimination. And she discovered in the process of that what it is like to be a discriminated against minority because she was working on this campaign despite being a a straight woman. She was really targeted and it was an incredibly violent campaign. Um, There's this huge surge in hate crimes. Uh, There was actually a firebombing and two people died. Um, And so as part of that, she was like, okay, this is important to me. Um, I could retreat to the relative calm of fighting for reproductive freedom, uh, but instead I'm going to uh, make this my cause. And so she devoted her life for years, and it's because of her work that we changed the way we talk about marriage for LGBTs for a long time. And you look back at Prop 8 and you see this mistake. All the ads are about rights and obligations and judges and what's fair. Um, It was because of Thalia's uh, research and focused groups and testing that we realized, oh, that's a mistake, actually. Straight people hear that and they think gay people want to get married for weird legal reasons instead of the reasons that everyone actually wants to get married because they're in love and they want to make a commitment and start a family. So Thalia did all this testing and research and it's when she did her work around 2012 that you suddenly see the ads change and that's when we started winning. We got those four states, Washington, Maryland, uh, Minnesota, and I'm missing one other. Maine. Maine. And uh, yeah, we won – Four states and one election, which is just mind-blowing. Right. You know, it's like you say, that inevitability, because two months before that election, we were convinced we were going to lose all four. Brian Brown stood in my dining room two months before that election, three months before that election, and said that they were going to win. And then we won. <laughs> he, said, he said his side was winning and his side has been losing ever since he walked through my front door. I think we should drag every Republican politician and activist in the country through my house because it has some wooju yeah. that screws up all of their hopes and dreams. Matt Baum, he is the author of Defining Marriage Voices from a 40-Year Labor of Love. Will you please hang out and take one question with us? Yeah, Everybody comes to the show, to. you got to co-answer uh, a question on the podcast. Absolutely. 
Hey, Dan. My name is Steve. I'm um, 27-year-old gay male living in a Northeast city. Uh, I'm calling because I'm struggling to continue a relationship with my grandmother because every time I seem to call her, she asks me about who I'm dating. And since I'm a gay male, um, she, and she doesn't know that, she's expecting that I always have a girlfriend or I'm about to be in a relationship with someone. And it gets to the point where she continues to bother me about it so much that I actually have stopped calling her a lot of the time. And I feel awkward about it and bad about it because she's getting old and she won't be around that much longer. And I want to keep calling her, but it's just like the only thing she often asks me about is that I don't really know how to approach it. I think we both know the answer to this question. It's probably time to open up a little bit to your grandmother. Uh, you know, you know her better than uh, anybody on this show knows her, but, uh, you but, know, I think she can. She might surprise you. And look at what you're doing because you won't come out to her because you're afraid she'll reject you. Most likely you don't give that reason, but that's probably it. You're afraid she'll reject you, so you don't want to come out to her, so you've stopped calling her. You are rejecting her for fear that she might reject you. You call are, your grandmother for heaven's sake. Call your tell her you're a fucking fag. You're 27 years old, and all your grandmother knows now is that her grandson has stopped talking to her for reasons that she cannot comprehend. She's probably hurt. She would rather know you were gay than be abandoned by you at the end of her life. And if you really need something to to lead into it, I'd say start with some good news. Say, I've met someone and I'm so happy. I'm in love. It's the greatest thing that's ever happened. And if she loves you, which I bet she does, she's going to be happy for you. And then when you drop the bombshell, she'll be like, maybe I wasn't expecting that. Uh, But hopefully she'll recover and move on and be happy that you're happy. And I think sometimes we have this stereotype in our heads when you put the label grandparent on Mm. someone. Your grandmother, let's say she's 65 years old. When she was 25 years old, it was the 70s. It was the 80s. It's not like gay people were unheard of in your grandmother's youth. So don't assume that just because somebody is a grandmother, even if she's 80, that she has no idea what gay people are. And maybe that's your concern. Maybe she has this idea that gay people are terrible people. Maybe she said homophobic things to you. We don't know. And that's why you hesitate to tell her who you are. But then if you tell her if she's homophobic, if you tell her who you are and she rejects you, then it's on her that she's been abandoned by her grandson at her deathbed. Not abandoned, that she sent her grandson away. Then it's her problem. Yeah. And who knows? Don't underestimate her. Maybe she'll come around. Maybe she said shitty homophobic things 20 years ago. And like so many people in the country, including the goddamn president, she's evolved. Give her the chance. You know, I wasted a lot of time not telling my grandparents about my partner, James. I've been together for about 13 years. And for only about three of those have my grandparents known that he exists. And how did they react when you told them? They've been great. They've been great. They they call him my friend, but <laughs> they they love him. He's a part of the family. Uh, so don't waste time. You don't correct. He's my ass friend. <laughs> we're, we'll get there. We're working. We're, we'll work on that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And before we let you go, so what's next for you? You've been an activist for a long time. You've focused a lot on marriage over the last seven or eight years working for AFER. What's next on your agenda and on the LGBT movement's agenda? Yeah, so there's still a lot of work to do around non-discrimination. There's still a lot of work to do around uh, trans issues. Uh, So that work's going to continue. What I'm interested in doing right now is what this book is, is documenting the stories of how we got here and and making sure that that history is captured because there are a lot of um, gaps, what I I unfortunately referred to recently as gaping holes in gay history. Uh, 
So because things weren't documented. So there are, you know, gay history is full of gaping holes, good ones and bad ones. And, and hopefully we can plug a few of them. Uh, oh my God, stop it. You're killing me with this, <laughs> this but, metaphor. Yeah. So, um, so I'm making, I'm still making videos about what's happening with LGBT issues. And where can people find you and your stop in your videos? Twitter? Yep. I'm on Twitter at Matt Baum, M-A-T-T-B-A-U-M-E. Defining Marriage is on Amazon. And there's also a podcast version where I'm releasing one chapter a week as an audiobook. You can find that at definingmarriage.com. Thank you so much for dropping in. And you should really go check out Matt's videos. One great example of the work he does, just a brilliant video when people compared Mary Cheney, compared doing drag to blackface, men dressing up as women to white people dressing up and, and blacking up and pretending uh, that they're African-Americans. You did a video unpacking the distinction and differences between drag and blackface. It's just so smart and so informed and so characteristic of your your humanity, your work, your humor and your light touch. It's a terrific video. Check it out and all of Matt's other stuff. Thank you so much for dropping in. All right. Thank you. Hey, Dan. just want to let you know, I was just listening to your recent show uh, talking about the whole Gawker situation and how, you know, I agree with everything you said, how you know, long-term marriage is a complicated thing and arrangements are made to make it last, on and on and on. So I'm listening to this episode as I am scanning my parents' wedding honeymoon photo album, turning them digital for their upcoming 35th wedding anniversary. So as you're talking about long-term marriage, <laughs> having arrangements and complications, all I can think about is, oh boy, what have they done to make this last? So thanks for that, Dan. <laughs> this is a response to the caller in episode 456 with the fear of commitment to his girlfriend, even though they have a life together and a good relationship. Dan, your advice was great. I've dealt with a similar issue in some guy friends, and the issue seems to come down to fantasy versus reality. We like to fantasize about what our lives might look like. Our real lives never look like the fantasy. The older you get, the more you learn to enjoy reality and let go of the dream. If you believe your life could look like the dreamy world in your head, the bitterness of not leading that life will cause your real, tangible relationship to deteriorate for many sad and lonely years. This is an issue of accepting reality and putting your effort into making a good relationship better instead of chasing after a fairy tale. Or, Dan, as you so frequently say, rounding up to the one. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about the caller in episode 456 who went to the wedding and heard the one man, one woman comment. So my husband and I have been married for 10 years, and 10 years ago, we were going over the service with our pastor, um, and he wasn't particularly bigoted. It's not a bigoted church, necessarily. Uh, we didn't go there. We just got married there. Um, but it's part of the standard wedding diatribe is just that phrase, um, marriage is between one man and one woman. So we specifically asked for it to be taken out, you know, and it was. However, if if the rehearsal didn't include the entire speech, or if for some reason the pastor didn't go over everything, the couple might not realize that that is going to be said, and it's just kind of standard. So I don't know if it's necessarily anti-gay bigotry. I felt it was, so we made them take it out. But perhaps just to everyone out there getting married, uh, maybe you should listen to the entire pastor sermon and make sure you approve of everything that's being said beforehand so your guests don't have to feel uncomfortable, even if it's not uh, intentionally bigoted. Good advice. And here's a suggestion for people who 
are going to weddings and know some newlyweds. You know what makes a great wedding present? The Savage Lovecast Magnum Edition, www.savagelovecast.com, where you can gift a subscription to the Magnum to those newlyweds. Or if you are the newlyweds, you can gift those subscriptions to your entire wedding party and to your parents and your grandparents too. All right, we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Go to humptour.com and click on submit for information about making and submitting a five-minute or less amateur porn film for our upcoming amateur porn film festival here in Seattle and Portland and all around the country. The info you need is at humpfest.com. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Matt Baum on Twitter at Matt Baum. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Rescue and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for having me.